Welcome to the Book to Screen Club. Nora here, and I have the fabulous Sean with me to review Hot Off the Streaming Platform, The Dig. Uh, sadly, Sean is a social media desert. Charming as always. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, if, only, if only we could have you give up 90% of your day to be addicted <laughs> to social media. Don't worry. I, I filled that time with other utter nonsense. So, um... <laughs> But for real though, so when I was writing my notes for this, I kept writing the dirt. Interesting. On I, it. Ke- I kept writing the dog, which was <laughs> equally bad. <laughs> well, because the problem was when I went to save the file with my notes in it, it said, Do you want to replace your other file called The Dirt? And I was like, Wait, what? The Did I write crew. this already? Is there another film called The Dirt? Dirt. And then I was like, oh <laughs> shit, I forgot about the Molly Caruso dirt. And then I was like, oh, it's actually not it's called the, the dirt, it's the dig. But it doesn't <laughs> yes, dirt. yes, very true. <laughs> There's a lot of dirt. Um, but so John Preston's The Dig, which is what we're covering, and just released on Netflix on January 29th. He also wrote A Very English Scandal, which I loved the TV series for, and I highly recommend. Yeah, but same, same here. Only seen the show, um, but, but really loved it. I had, didn't realise he was, he'd written the book that it was adapted from, but yeah, I saw that in my um, my digging around. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of puns. And he also just released a biography on Robert Maxwell, who is Ghislaine Lane? Is that how you say her name? Maxwell's father? Um, oh, really? Oh, I can see this. Currently on trial. That is interesting. So that, I totally I totally <laughs> see that being essential <laughs> film material. So but I'm always impressed by someone who has like multiple worthy adaptations. Yeah, true. And quite like, um, um, he hasn't got the biggest kind of bibliography, but quite an interesting array of kind of subject matter and material that he's kind of written about. He's, I mean, he's obviously, he's a history buff to a certain extent, and we'll get into that. But uh, so I think this is going to be a really interesting one because, and kind of funny in the sense that it is a fictionalized adaptation of a fictionalized account of a yes, true story. Yes, that is, that is the, the lay of it, yes. <laughs> So is any of it real <laughs> is the question. So very wonderfully, Sean is going to lead us in discussing the book. And I have lots of comments about the accuracy of the book. And I will interject as... <laughs> well, I'll, I'm going to do a, uh, a brief kind of intro and the blurb of the book. Um, and then I have pulled out mm-hmm. some, uh, some questions that I thought would be of interest about the book. Um, because the, the, the actual kind of beat-for-beat beat plot runs fairly similarly from book to movie with a couple of mm-hmm. incredibly pivotal changes. Um, so I figured we focus on that, but for now. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah. The Dig by John Preston. Uh, John Preston's historical novel, The Dig, was originally published in May of 2007 set in the context of the 1939 Anglo-Saxon ship burial excavation at Suttonhoo, Suffolk. The dust jacket describes it as a brilliantly realised account of the most famous archaeological dig in British modern times. Um, The full blurb is as follows. In the long hot summer of 1939, Britain is preparing for war. 
but on a riverside farm in Suffolk, there is excitement of another kind. Mrs. Pretty, the widowed farmer, has had her much uh, has had her hunch proven correct at the strange mounds on her land hold the, the land held buried treasure. As the dig proceeds against the background of mounting national anxiety, it becomes clear that this is no ordinary find. John Preston's recreation of Sutton Hoo's dig, the greatest Anglo-Saxon discovery ever in Britain, brilliantly and comically dramatises three months of intense activity when locals for outsiders, professionals, thwarted amateurs and love and rivalry flourished in equal measure. So that is the, the broad context of the book. I've pulled out uh, five, what I'm hoping, uh, interesting questions around the book, which I thought would kick off our conversation. Um, the first is, okay. um, the book opens with a short prologue uh, of Basil working kind of alone at night through the excavation, uh, upon which he discovers something, which is unknown to the audience at this time and rushes off to tell Miss Pretty. Then the book jumps back two months. What do we make of this opening? Do we think it adds anything? Because it's quite a short novel. The fact that it, adds, it starts in like media res and then we jump back a little bit. Do we think that works as a narrative device? I found that so frustrating because I felt like the first, that little first section made it really difficult for me to get into it because I was so confused as yep. what was going on. Like, he clearly isn't, like, an action writer. And I think he was trying to pitch some sort of high-paced, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, national treasure type scene. <laughs> Sorry, <there's> a... <laughs> and I, I, had, I put the book down and I, like, left it for a few days. So I was just like, what? Yeah, I, it made me kind of disinterested and actually keep reading I, after that. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I fully agree. It felt, it felt really bizarre to start with a, a, a kind of a, what felt like it was trying to be like a hook with like this mystery that was unfolding. But like, if you've read the blurb, you, you're already aware of what this yeah. thing is. Like, the way it's paced feels like he's discovered like a body or, or something kind of untoward um and then when you catch up to that point in the narrative as it unfolds it loses a bit of its impact because you've already had this kind of minor moment kind of spoilt for you in the opening um yeah um the we'll, we'll come to the epilogue which i think works much better in the in the book mm -hmm. Um, I agree. And I think it's interesting that the, and we'll go into this more, that the movie scraps this entirely, doesn't go for in media res open. We start with chapter one, page one, basically, in the movie as proper. <laughs> because it is, it's based on a true story, so we know what's going to happen. So to do this, like, kind of, oh my God, reveal at the beginning. It's a little bit pointless because we know yeah. they discovered this treasure. It'd be more surprised <laughs> yeah, exactly, if they did exactly. it. <laughs> when the book describes it as like the most important archaeological find in British history, you're, you're assuming he's not running up to a house to go. Turns out there's nothing actually. It's empty. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
interesting that you mentioned how it's based on a true story. My second question is about what I feel might be quite a contentious character. Um, so question two is, Laurie Romax is a fictional character woven into a story of real people and events. Mm-hmm. What did we think of him and the kind of role that was constructed for him and around him? I didn't totally mind him in the book because he didn't, the storyline they're using for him mm-hmm. in the film bothered me more. Um, but I, yeah, I just, he, he felt like a bit of a background character in the book in the sense of um, having someone for Edith to have like yeah. a confidant, I guess. And I could, I kind of could understand that. So I, it wasn't like noticeably something that bothered me. Um, there's, I, there are other characters whose fictionalization bothered me more than creating this person. Because the thing is, I don't, I didn't find anything out about the two people. I, I did see the names of the two people who is meant to be. Yeah, him, so that's, but... um, I've got a tiny bit of background about that. So essentially, Roy Lomax's character comes in as uh, Mrs. Pretty, Edith's uh, cousin. Um, he comes down as kind of like he's got an interest somewhat in the dig and is like an amateur photographer and he comes down to take photographs and kind of is aware that she's slightly unwell and is kind of lending her a hand Um, and I didn't know that he was a fictionalised character until after I'd finished the book Um, in in actuality um, there were photographers on site who took photos of the, the excavation. They were Mercy Lack and Barbara Wagstaff, uh, who were teachers and friends, who were holidaying in the area at the time of the excavation and got wrapped up in it. That's quite cool. That would be so fun if you just like had people who are, you know, rambling on, like, oh, we're on holiday and start taking these pictures and then get embroiled yeah. in this whole drama. Um, I, I agree. I think that could have been very interesting. And what Lomax added to the story for me wasn't a justification enough to strip out what could have been an interesting uh, divestment. Um, You mentioned your uh, displeasure with some other fictionalised aspects of characters. I think I know what you're going to say, but but for those listening, what what were those problems? Well, I did uh, write out some more correct facts. about certain characters such as because we opened the book the book starts off with basil brown and so reading about him he left school when he was 12 to become a farm laborer and uh, his great interest was archaeology though however he read voraciously taught himself four languages and wrote a book an astronomical atlas uh which is you know Mm -hmm quite a cool guy and he also became uh quite friendly with um charles charles phillips who was the lead archaeologist from the british museum and uh another little tidbit is that uh he excavated all three smaller mounds pretty much by himself with the help of i think one of the farm laborers uh the summer prior to yes that was the thing I, i uh I love that. So the, the book takes place over the course of, is it four or five months? Um, but in actuality, yeah, yeah they... It's really a summer, a, yeah, it's like a summer. Yeah, they started in 38 for a summer and they came back the next year and that's when they discovered the kind of, the bigger 
quantities. Do we want to just talk about Basil Brown, or because I also have stuff about? No, I think I think that is is the uh, Peggy and Stuart's relationship is one of the biggest changes to actual people who are involved. But I mean, Basil. I mean, in the in the book, I think Basil. He's very. He's such a tepid. No, but very much. So. Yeah, agreed. And he just doesn't have any backbone <laughs> because he never. And obviously, as we're talking about the movie, we'll make a point of mentioning he never stands up for himself. Really, no. um, in, in in the book, I can't think of any any occasion. He's he always feels constantly. He doesn't feel like he deserves what he's already got, even though he does. Uh, whereas in in the movie, and like you say, we'll, we'll, we'll come to it. He he does have much more. They add much more of him being strong-willed or making decisions, and such. And. You know, and very, I mean, he's clearly like a very intelligent man, but is so overly conscious of mm-hmm. his place in society um, that it prevents him from like pushing him beyond his like own internal interest and fascination in archaeology. Like he's, I mean, I, I think he does want respect, but I don't know if he actually, he doesn't come off and carry enough to do something about it. Like, he just wants to do this thing because he's interested in it. Like, he loves dirt and archaeology and learning and seeing things, but uh, the politics... No, 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 he's very happy not. to kind of accept everyone else's view of him as this kind of, like, enthusiastic amateur, even though he clearly kind of proves throughout the kind of, well... The actual history of it um that he's capable of on his own kind of merits yeah because even um once the british museum does take over in the book that he's not allowed to step foot inside the actual boat anymore and he and the rest of and again i don't know how factual that is either that because it from what i read because I, I read a few of like the british museum did a really a good account on their website about it um that he didn't, it wasn't like contentious in the way that the book or the film really portrays it, his mm. relationship with the British Museum. Um, I think there was definitely some classism, uh, don't get me wrong. But yeah, in the book, he and um, the other laborers are only allowed to like move piles Yeah, yeah, essentially as soon as they ship. take over, Basil becomes just another laborer, despite his kind of experience. He becomes the same as Jacobs and Spooner, just hauling dirt and doing the heavy graft and then also specifically to reference it, his relationship with his wife as well uh i mean i think it's probably actually more interesting in the book i don't really enjoy how they sort of the tension mm. they they create in the film in that she kind of understands that he's in his own world and there's sort of a respect of like letting him be for the most part and yeah. he'll come back to her and they're quite the moments they're together agreed yeah yeah as soon as they're yeah. with each other there is like clearly a kind of a love and a bond between them but it always just feels a little bit melancholy because his wife may it always feels like she knows that she's kind of second place to his yeah, second sadly, to the dirt. yeah like, <laughs> she knows that this kind of the excitement yeah. he gets from the archaeology side of things is always going to tempt him away and that's why he spends like weeks away from home on this dig um and they have these fleeting moments where she comes to visit 
And it's incredibly, it's incredibly endearing when he asks her if she wants to stay the night and she's like, oh no, I need to, I can't miss my lift home. And they had this kind of sweet parting moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it, I, I, had, I had some notes about it. Yeah, but I think it's incredibly interesting how they kind of handle their relationship and this kind of, there's something that comes between them, his kind of passion for archaeology. But there is like a tenderness and kind of love between them. Whereas uh, you've got Stuart and Peggy's relationship where they're seemingly together a lot of the time and have a lot of similar interests and passion, but there is missing that connection and bond, which the book hints at, um, but the movie explores in great <laughs> greater depths. <laughs> but the thing is, none, none of it's true. true. Yes. So in, in both the book and movie, uh, Stuart and Peg's relationship um, is described as Stuart being an older professor and Peggy being one of his students and then for, for some unbeknownst reason falling in love and getting married. I don't yeah. know how um, it happened. So the book opens with them uh, on their honeymoon being called back to help with the Sutton Who excavation and the movie does the same thing. But in real life, do you have the facts in front of you, Nora? Well, they have been married for two years, mm-hmm. I think it was, before. Is that right? And they did remain married for like 20 years or something. I don't know if they were like together, but they they had an established relationship and they were quite close in age. I think yeah, they were only a few years. They were both so students he wasn't her at the same place. I think it was one and a half years yeah. between them. So it feels like a big jump that we've made yeah. to kind of scandalize the relationship somewhat with this uh professor student angle i i'm just like with peggy in the book like i actually think for the most part mm-hmm. it was quite well written but the frustration is that when i was reading about her as a real person i was like my god she has such a badass yeah. life and and it's not that she isn't intelligent in the book but it just kind of sells her short a bit so they they, had, they remained married for quite a long time. I don't know whether they were living together, but they seemed to be actually good friends. And then eventually when she got divorced, she met a guy in Sicily. They got married and he had a mental breakdown uh, and took care of him, but then he left her. And then eventually she was took moved in and took care of uh, T. Lawrence's younger brother because she was quite close with them. But also more importantly, uh, besides her romances, which are quite, her relationships are quite fascinating, but she managed countless digs for the Ministry of Works, as well as being probably one, one of Britain's most well-respected archaeologists, has published over 50 works on British pre history. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame was, that, yeah, yeah. as good and as they got. It's a shame got. that book and movie kind of both <laughs> gloss over that. But maybe at that time, um, the way thing, the, the fact that she was a woman they look down on her immediately, which seems um, baffling in context now. Um, but yeah, they don't really, the book does a slightly better job of kind of giving her a little bit of agency, whereas the movie gives her agency mm. in one area, which I hated and we will get to. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's a shame that there's not more of that kind of context or even like, uh, uh, like one scene of her kind of 
standing her ground a little bit more because um, she does so much of the work yeah. and fight and discover so much of it. Um, that like there's a point in the book where um, Basil is taken off of the excavation work, and initially you feel kind of kind of torn for him and angry the fact that he's done all this work and now he's just kind of been pushed aside. But it, it, they does such a good job of bringing her in as your kind of point of view character at that point because you can kind of immediately sympathise with her yeah. for similar reasons. Um, and you're looking at the characters that you're mm-hmm. frustrated with on Basil's behalf, similarly frustrating on her behalf, which I think really works yeah. in terms of kind of the structure of the book. But yeah, God, I, when you read up on her, she's so fascinating. If you were just saying that she's pushed off into this fictionalised love triangle. Well, it's just, I, because I was trying, so she's John Preston's aunt. Yes. You saw that. And so I was trying to read up, like, because he knows he's, he's not actually telling her true story. And I'm sort of like, why didn't you just write a book about your aunt? He sounds cool. But I, I so I wanted to try and find, like, something about him saying something about her. And so w- to quote him, so this is what he kind of said about the concept of it. And, <laughs> and it just kind of shows, like, I'm not sure I actually want to read any of his historical books. Oh, no. I'm not sure I trust him. Uh, he said, it began almost 20 years earlier when I was working as a television critic. I'd written a review of a documentary about Lawrence of Arabia in which I mentioned that my aunt had had a long-running relationship with Lawrence's younger brother. I did say she was a woman of many qualities. A few days later, I received a letter from someone who had read my review and claimed to be my long-lost second cousin. To begin with, I assumed she was probably unhinged, but much to my surprise, she turned out to be right. A few weeks later, we had lunch together. As I was about to leave, my newfound cousin said in passing, I assume you know your late aunt was found the first gold that was discovered at Sudden Who. In fact, I had no idea because I hardly knew my aunt. She and my father didn't really get along. Wow. (laughs) So he really (laughs) doesn't know anything about Okay, maybe, maybe, yeah. And that's how it began. And it's just kind of like, oh. That makes the whole thing even more fascinating. The fact that the most, the most changes he made to actual people involved were the people that he's related to. That's a fascinating stance. It, I was really shocked when I read that. I was like, ooh, dude, not the best. <laughs> yeah, and what I like is to... like, that is such a, like, a long quote just to say basically one line of, I didn't really know much about her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just making it up. And I wonder if, like, I mean, the thing with this book and reading about her, it made me want to mm-hmm. actually look her up because like, ah, oh, is this person real? What did they do? And I'm like, I'm more impressed with the Wikipedia <laughs> page than his book. But again, again, though, it's such a slight, such a slight novel. Um, and it does focus like the fact that he's condensed two years work into like a summer means you don't get like it's not like he's writing flowery prose it's quite kind of concise in terms of how he's delivering the narrative um which is why it's a shame he kind of convolutes things when you could have kind of explored some of these real people with a little bit more kind of interest like like for me at least and I mean I saw some fairly scathing reviews of the book but I, I overall really enjoyed it um, 
I just think you could have done made made for just as interesting, if not more interesting, kind of version of this story with just the facts, like the characters as they were. Um, so yeah, the the kind of elements added for dramatic effect. Oh. Also, there was a, another quote from an, an archaeologist who knew her and her ex-husband. Oh, by the way, there's nothing online about her ex-husband being gay. And maybe he, John Preston did know about this based on family information. But he's, I don't think he said anything about whether or not that's true. I don't think the book codes him so much as being gay. As the no, no, no. The, the book very much... Um, it just seems... There, there, there's some sort of distance between them whether that's an age thing or him not being able to work with her or the fact that he was her presser, there is some sort of unspoken awkwardness between yeah, the I didn't read it as being gay, actually. No, I didn't pick up on any of that, but yeah, the film very much leans into that being the, being the issue. But So this, this archaeologist who in, like knew them said, uh, uh, I, did, I did have a really interesting assessment um, in having known the Pigos in the world of archaeology. And what I will say, because this is just based off of reading the book, not seeing the film. What I will say that it's a good thing Peggy Guido was dead when this was published. She would have hated it. John Preston's aunt was a far more interesting person than this wishy-washy schoolgirl. And that's, and if that's the best you can do in fiction. <laughs> to end on a positive note, isn't this a lovely story? Wow. <laughs> well, I said I just scathing reviews yeah, but that but is a pretty damning um quote yeah i'm just like i think i wanted a different <laughs> book <laughs> like it's not and it's not like it's a bad book because it's like talking about you know classism in the 1930s mm -hmm. marital relations the sort of the effect that the war had on yep. archaeology and any sort of historical study and I mean, those are interesting subject matters in itself, but kind of trying to tackle having this young archaeologist in this loveless marriage uh, and also this, you know, Basil's sort of fight against the educational snobbery. And then you have um, the health problems and family problems of Edith, which, who we haven't even talked about yet. And then trying to thread them together in this very short book you just don't get anything substantial on any of those subject matters instead of just focusing on one of them where you could get maybe a picture. Yeah, agreed. Reading. It's sadly one of those, it's one of those times where having read the book with no context, I enjoyed it quite a lot. And then as soon as you start doing any kind yeah. of deeper kind of reading around it or the people or the kind of ramifications, it loses a little bit of its kind of luster and impact. Yeah, it just it has so much potential. I feel like, and I think for me, even when I was reading, I was a little bit bored because I was like, I like history, and I like, you know, when we did like Mary Queen of Scots and stuff, which is like a huge book. And I was like, even with that, and that was quite dry, but it's like still interesting because there's like fascinating yeah, things yeah. that happened in history, and and also you have like World War Two is coming, and which is it's a little heavier in the film, but it's not it barely features i feel like yeah it is kind book. of back, um, background dressing to the to the book rather than the movie handles it much more kind of in depth i felt i yeah i think i just i either wanted like 
you know, I didn't, I kind of recognized the name of Sudden Who, but I was like, I want an actual book about Sudden Who and what happened. Like, yeah. I want the real book because it sounds so fascinating and the, the actual politics at play. Because um, none of it, like, you know, reading the information about it uh, that we could find, it was like, this sounded so interesting. And also, it's one of the most important yeah. historical events for British. Sorry, no, 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 not at all. No, I do. I, um, I, I do very much agree. We should talk about yes. Edith, though, as well. So you have, like, yeah, so you get Basil, and then you get what, actually, Peggy's after Edith, I think, but you also get introduced to Edith, who is the landover, landowner of them, who. Did you have a question? Um, nothing specifically about, about her. My, my next question kind of loops into an interesting kind of character trait, but we'll come to that. I think, it's, uh, I think we should probably kind of talk around her a little bit. So she is a well-to-do um, widower, uh, married to a Colonel Frank Pretty. Um, she has a young son, Robert. In the book, she is uh, much older. Yeah, much older than she seems in the, the movie. Um, apparently, yeah. Apparently, um, Nicole Kidman was originally uh, intended to play the role of Miss Pretty in the movie, which might have worked a little better. Because um, the book anchor, anchors around the fact that she's this older mother and it's unusual that she's got a young son, Robert. Um, I think she's a really kind of fascinating character and probably the kind of the backbone of the whole story. She's the one who kind of pushes things forward and kind of has this hunch about the larger mound and kind of pushes Basil to kind of excavate it. She pushes back against the kind of Ministry of Works and the British Museum when they kind of come stamping around. Um, but the whole time the book is weaving in this thing about how she's hiding how unwell she is. And the movie kind of, again, leans into this kind of quite quite heavily. Um, I thought she was a really fascinating character. Again, I, I haven't done much reading around her separately, uh, but I thought she was an incredibly fascinating character. Yeah, what I read about her, actually, I would say she... I, you know, obviously John Preston not knowing her in real life, but she was probably actually the closest to mm. the real life version of her because I think probably he didn't have any like context to change who she was. Um, and also because the pretty family, I think, still have rights over the land okay. um, of where the mounds are. Because I think, I don't know, if it wasn't in the book, but I read that her son had to he had the power to grant the rights to re-excavate the land, which is a part of the deal because they sold okay. the, yeah. So that continued on. So I think that the family was still involved as well as his son. Um, but yeah, no, I think she was probably the closest to real life from what I read. You know, she was 47 when she had him. She came from a crazy wealthy family. She, I think it was, she, he proposed to her like 15 times her husband before she said yes, which was true. Which is a real, it's a real shame. The, the book, um, the book has that story told and it's like a really yeah. wonderful little story that um, Basil gets told about how this colonel was in love with her. He came on her birthday every year and proposed, but she was caring for her father, so turned him down. He kept trying, he was determined. And then he came a year when her father had passed away and she accepted. And that's yeah. why they're both older in life and trying to start a family, um, which I thought was brilliant. And, 
the movie does a really, really sad thing where it kind of has the story told really quietly yeah. in the background of the scenes. You don't really get the context of it, which kind of loses a bit of it for me, which is a, a shame. But yeah, what a like a brilliant woman. Again, like I'm glad the kind of book yeah. stays fairly true to her. Yeah, and they did like in reading about her, she did her and her husband before she had her son. They traveled all around the world together. She was fascinated with history and archaeology and um just like kind she was independently well wealthy from her family and that's why she bought sudden who house so no she sounds really cool and i you know in the book actually i found it so interesting reading sort of an older woman and there's one scene particularly that was really like got me a bit that i thought was you know i think john Preston is a beautiful writer his way with words whether or not I like the story, but when her young son tries to, he's so excited, he likes to tries to jump on her because he's, I forget what it was. It might have been like when they discovered something. He's like, mom, mom, and he like tries to jump and hug her and she like can feel herself. I don't know if it's like a bit of vertigo or she gets sort of like dizzy uh, and it's just too much for her because she's quite weak and older. Um, and I thought that was just really interesting to see that relationship because she was 47 when she had him probably wasn't necessarily on purpose at that point and her navigating having a, a child that age and everyone being not realizing that he's her mother and the politics of that yeah and her struggling I think that is that is so so interesting yeah the fact that there's a couple of times in the book where there's a little bit of a misconception about the relationship with her and Robert because she is that bit older um she never kind of shows any kind of outward kind of unnerve or kind of weakness towards it but yeah you can see it's a bit of a kind of yeah and as well that she knows that her son is so lonely and she can't really play with him and engage with him in the way he needs because there's and there's no children around so she worries like a lot about him so she doesn't really know what to do because obviously the war is starting so um it's kind of is another problem but yeah I I think probably I appreciated her probably the most uh in the portrayal in the book yeah I think her and Basil were kind of good anchor points for the book um I thought they were good kind of through lines and their their interactions with each other actually were, were, were yeah were, were and a very I'm gonna make a point um, asexual relationship they were friends that is it <laughs> There was no reading beyond that. They were friends, yeah. They were, he, I think Basil's actually younger than yeah, we're, her we're, we're, in real life. In, the, in, the, uh, in real life, yeah, I think you might be right, yeah. But the, the, the movie does not look that way. He's quite, um, he's a little doddering in places, is, is, uh, is our Basil. Good on a bike, but a bit, a bit doddering. Um, but with the, um, there is two scenes that concern the both of them separately, which is part of my next question. And I, th- I I mean, I'm not surprised the movie cut these, but the book has two scenes depicting kind of mediums or like psychics um, of some description. Yeah. So you've got, um, so Edith goes to mm-hmm. London to visit a Mr. Swithins, who is um, a medium and she's trying to kind of reconnect or have some kind of goodbye with her husband. And she's, the book makes it clear that she's having these visits like weekly she's going to London to kind of see this Mr Swithins and then later on in the book um 
I think it's Basil ends up in a church and there is Joan described as the woman in blue who is kind of like given a sermon at a church and she's doing that kind of traditional psychic on TV thing like does anyone know a Donald and people raise their hands and she's kind of doing this communing with the other side uh, kind of shtick. Um, but I was not expecting that at all in this book. And I was fascinated by the scene. The fact that there was like yeah. two separate occasions with two different characters doing this kind of spiritualist medium thing <laughs> in amongst this book about archaeology and uncovering facts and history was, was boggling but fascinating to me. <laughs> what I did mean, you make of this? Because I, I just didn't like... see it coming. IRL she was actually really into spiritualism from what I read about her I don't know if Basil would be going to this but um I think it was it was just very trendy in that time people were very into it so it would be in theory yeah. it would actually be happening around you I mean I thought there were well-written moments I don't think it did anything for the story mm-hmm. <laughs> in like making this yeah like, you know a great book or anything uh they, they were yeah no i i think i overall enjoyed those moments it, you know i could see maybe the thought process of it contributing to looking at you know un- unburying the dead and the ghosts of you know the past and what is yeah exactly what i was gonna say yeah if i was writing some sort of pretentious is, essay on it is that it, is, is the, exact, the, book when <laughs> the exact three line i try and quoting build. the um uh, the book about discovering uh, King Tut's grave when the archaeologist who found it could see uh, a fingerprint still in the paint on the wall and how like all time stops at that moment and kind of collapses all those thousands of years distance yep. between the person who had painted this uh, grave and him. And I think it, it's meant to like bring together that concept and um yeah, I th- I think that is the intention as well. That was my reading of it, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just it was an idea he had, which is interesting. But overall, I don't know if it does anything for the story. Yeah, agreed. In isolation, I thought they were like really brilliant little scenes and really well written and interesting. Especially seeing it from Edith's side, where she's very willing and hopeful and believes in this side of things and then Basil kind of stumbles into the church and is a bit kind of bewildered and almost a bit embarrassed and awkward that he's kind of present for it um which I thought was an interesting take on on both of them um my uh last question in regards to uh the book is about the epilogue so the book ends with a 21 year time jump to a now adult Robert um Edith's son um looking back on kind of what's happened to some of the key players who were involved in the dig mm-hmm. and the dig kind of in and of itself which yeah. is very different to kind of how the movie ends um but I I thought this was a brilliant epilogue I thought this really worked for me um I liked having yeah. Robert as this kind of yeah no I really liked it for the I, end of it. I think it was probably the best of writing of you know <laughs> no I thought it was a good way to tie everything <laughs> together even if it's not really his voice, um, just, you know, because it was a book where it wasn't really telling all the events. It was just kind of bits, like little sections of what happened. So for him to come in at the end and kind of give you an idea yeah. of where these people in theory ended up. I mean, I think some of it is actually true, like, uh, you know, knowing that 
um, it's just Sicily. Yeah. yeah, he talks about Peggy going to like so Sicily and that sort theory, of stuff. Yeah, from what I've read, that some of that would be real for the most part. Obviously, Rory Lomax is not real. I think that's in reference to T. Lawrence who died in a motorcycle accident, though. So potentially, yeah, I think that's right. Oh, really? Um, but no, I thought it, it, it's like kind of a really short book. I think it took me like two days just sitting in, in the evening and reading it. Um, it's, it's a breeze. Like, and, you yeah, know, I think in general, on a superficial level, it's mostly enjoyable. But if I'm actually looking at it and it's like, oh, I want to learn, you know, this is a cool subject matter. I want to find out more about. I didn't actually learn anything about Sentinel in the book. I get legitimately like I don't think I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only thing the book, the only thing the book revealed to me that I wasn't aware of was the fact that this was the dig that made them kind of change perspective yeah. on how they looked at the kind of dark ages as it were, this kind of Anglo-Saxon um, civilization. Um, I wasn't quite aware that this was that. This was the dig that kind of changed all of that thinking about their kind of culture and art and the kind of people they were. Um, but yeah, other, otherwise, nothing. Like you said, on a superfluous level, quite an enjoyable kind of romp of a story. Um, but yeah, if I didn't look into anything afterwards, yeah. I would have probably been recommending it and very much enjoying it. But now I have to yeah, recommend none it of with somewhat of a caveat. The fact that there was a dig. No, it's just, it's because these are such <laughs> yeah. cool people. Like, really, legitimately, like, Basil Brown's, like, someone write a memoir, a book about him. Someone write a book about Peggy and Edith. And just, these are such yeah. impressive individuals. Um, and I feel like I'm just missing so much. Like, you know, I'm, yeah, it did a good job in making me want to learn more. Yeah, which I guess is, is, um, yeah. Is a job well done, I suppose, for a yeah. book about an historical event. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any more thoughts before we move on to the movie? Not particularly. I, yeah, I think I said what I needed to about it. It's, uh, I had lots of like, because I, you know, I, I sort of watch and I'm like typing as I'm watching the movie and I'm like, oh my God, why am I doing this? So <laughs> what is this? Um, I had lots of little note like that. I apologize. <laughs> did, did you guys no, watch I'm, it I'm together excited to hear. or did you watch it on your own? No, Eddie and I watched it together last night. Um, okay, so the film, which again, as I said, came out on the 29th, so if you have uh, Netflix, you can watch it there. It was directed by Simon Stone, who did The Daughter and The Turning. I think he's a theatre director and that's where he comes from. And Oh, really? I didn't really have any context for uh, him. He just, it looks like he did some work with The National, so that might be, I think that's his background. Uh, which kind of makes sense, because a, a lot of the people in the film have a bit of a theatre background. Uh, it was adapted mm -hmm. by Maura Buffini, who created the show The Harlot. He, she did the screenplay for Tamara Drew. <laughs> Tamara Drew. Uh, <laughs> and also Jane Eyre. It stars Ralph Fiennes, who plays Basil Brown, who is actually one of the few people in this film who has not previously featured in one of our episodes. Yeah, I was thinking uh, this, yeah. Unless we decide to ever, you know, want to do some self-harm and tackle Harry Potter. 
<laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that. Uh, Carrie Mulligan, who plays Edith Pretty, who was in Wildlife. Lily James plays Peggy Piggott, who was in Rebecca and Guernsey. Yeah. I also want to mention Monica Dolan, who plays Mary Brown, who was in Bag of Old Summer. You remember her? That's yes, yeah, she was. She yes, the mom. yes, yes, yes. I'm always so proud of her. She's such a like transform transformative actress. <sighs> I never recognized her. Yeah, she's she's phenomenal. I think. Yeah, she's I'm really, really incredible. Hero in this film. So, uh, Stuart mm. Piggott is played by Ben Chaplin, and Johnny Flynn plays Lori Lomax. And it was produced by Netflix, Magnolia May Films, and Clerkenwell Films. And as you said, Nicole Kidman was originally cast, uh, and then also apparently Kate Blanchett was attached as well. Interesting. I didn't. I didn't see that. That's, that is interesting. So, and as they say in the introduction, the title card of the film is based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> That it is. Again, very, very loosely, even more loosely than the book, uh, Ralph Klein arrives at a sudden house and has been invited by Miss Pretty to come look at her mound. And I have to ask you, geographically, why is he crossing a body of water to get to the house? Do you know? Like, why is he on a boat? So why would you need a boat to get there? At the start, I assume he's just, I assume he's just coming across the river. Oh. Um, I'm not sure. My geography is is atrocious. Um, but I assume there wasn't a bridge at the time. So he's just, yeah, the little ferry service. I, I just never think of needing to use a ferry in, like, the middle of England. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even really a ferry. It's like one, it's like one man it's, well, it's a little like, raft. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, I just... Oh, also, sorry, a completely different train of thought. I don't think mouth-to-mouth resuscitation was common practice in 1939. When they uh, dig him yeah. out. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that, that either. Because I looked it up, and I don't know if that would be standard practice as a way to... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And the only reason I thought of that is because another... <laughs> trying to thought was because I had just watched an episode of Eureka which is like a sci-fi show and they went back in time to um, World War Two, and some the, she, the woman from the future manages to save someone by uh, doing um, I think it's some sort of like CPR and the, one of the people from Soldiers is like what are you doing because he's never seen anyone do that before <laughs> Which made yeah. me speculate that maybe that was a historically accurate way to save someone's life. But, you know, not a historically accurate book. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and we are introduced to a very, very, very young Mrs. Pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like they, they did their best to kind of make her look fragile, at least. But yeah, she looks... 20, to, 20 years too young. Yeah. Oh, I do have, where was it? Oh, my God. I did. And it makes me feel like, are all actors a little bit daft? Probably. In there, where was it? There was a quote, because people have noticed that she's 34 and the woman in the story is, like, 57. <laughs> and it'd be quite rude to try and pretend she's 57, I think. And yeah. so Mulligan says, 
I suppose she, she doesn't even really look 34. I know she looks younger. <laughs> so in relation to this, this is what she said. She said, I suppose there is an age disparity between me and the real life character, but then the sense of her, I think, was the most important thing. <laughs> I was aged up slightly with makeup to try and split the difference a little bit, but it was more important to honor Edith's character and the humble, generous, extraordinary woman she was. It's a very nice quote, and I do think she did a good job. She did feel like the character, yeah. uh, but it does take you out of it knowing the fact that she is 22 years, two years too young, yeah. even with makeup. Uh, yeah, the fact, if that's her being aged up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She doesn't really have much of a makeup budget, I think. <laughs> so I was a little bit, like, taken out, like, uh, okay, and... Mm-hmm. Also, did you notice maybe Ralph Fiennes' accent wavering a little bit, or is that just me? I know you're not. So I didn't. I did not. Okay. Um, but that does not mean that that was not the case. Okay. There are a few moments where it shifted. Well, for me, I was like, that doesn't sound consistent. Um, mm, okay. He he had quite a range of like, kind of. <laughs> gruffer and then some more kind of quiet moments where I think yeah it could have slipped quite easy but but I didn't nothing took me out of it anyway okay. you know how I feel about accents I, I cannot do them but I am a critique of them <laughs> yes <laughs> ever, ever the critique well that's what I'm here for I'm not actually creating contact I'm, you know I'm just complaining about <laughs> other people doing it you're not doing a good job enough yeah it's more <laughs> it's more fun that way it is more fun that way so they look at the mound, and I think already she comes off as just much more capable and outspoken in the film, kind of uh, being quite forthright about her interest. Being in, she claims to be an amateur excavator, uh, yeah. and we we're introduced to her son, who the I mean, obviously we, he doesn't I think he has a personality, but we, in the film, kind of he's like a little sci-fi nerd, like really into the space. <laughs> He is, yes. Um, and I, I think they obviously have a lot of room to write him however they want for the most part. Because um, he's you know, very one-dimensional yeah. in the book. His, his space nerddom plays a little bit into their kind of um, ending for Edith and Robert yeah. as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, so originally he didn't want to, in the film they say he didn't want to take the job because it wasn't enough money, but then he negotiates more for it, which didn't, well, who knows what happened, really. <laughs> uh, I can't say whether or not any of this is true. And we, I also want to point out that the, the lighting is stunning. It has this kind of sepia brown tone to reflect the dirt and the camera work you know, I can say this repeatedly, is beautiful. And the lighting is, I yeah. think, amazingly it is done. For a, for a movie set ostensibly in a field, it is beautiful throughout, essentially. And we also, we meet Reed Moore and Guy Marnard, who are the sort of head hunters, and they, you know, Time, you know, they're sniffing around the dig. Um, and he does it similarly to the book. He, he's like, this is pointless. And um, 
Eve had kind of just given up, but Miss Pretty, you know, she says, you know, she's like, well, if Mr. Brown wants to stay, he can. I'm paying him. It's up to him whether or not he leaves. And uh, Mr. Brown does want to stay. And she she comes off like quite, also her relationship with her son, she's like quite stern because it, you see like she gets very weak very often. Um, and there's not a lot of joy in her about anything I think throughout the film even um, with the treasure at the end uh, she's just yeah she, she's someone who I don't know, she's depressed but she's in a lot of pain I, I think she's played and she goes to the so I think they maybe might have made this choice because I don't know what you think because of her age that so in the book, she's just kind of, she's old, she, you know, she has health problems. But in the film, they, well, the beginning, they think she has heartburn and because she's having sort of palpitations, I think. And I'm wondering if they, they wanted to make a point of giving her a specific illness because it wouldn't make sense for her to be elderly. And they probably created that for her character to try and just make her seem kind of weaker. Um, yeah, I, I kind of agree. Yeah, they give they give her a specific kind of uh, ailment that's kind of returned from when she was young. Um, yeah, which kind of sidesteps slightly the fact that she's not as old. Um, and it's quite it's quite a sad scene when the local doctor comes around and is like, "No, no, it's just heartburn. It's fine." And then you have to have this scene of her kind of clandestinely sneaking off to London to kind of see a specialist yeah. or whatever who kind of tells her it's worse than, than they expected. No no spiritualist it's just an actual doctor. Yeah, no spiritualists in the films are um, <laughs> So yeah, so we find that out later that it's actually she has um, her heart valves have been damaged because she had uh, what was it? Some sort of breathing... Yeah, she had I like a fever or something the... when she was a child that damaged her heart valves, and um, I think she, in real life she died of a stroke. Um, the actual Edith, but okay, yeah, and I think that so that was change. I from, from my perspective, for the purpose of the film, and then we have this little little thing that happens that you could tell kind of shifts how we're going to see Basil and Mary's relationship play out. And uh, so he's in his room and there's like this pile of unread letters that he's kind of just piling on and on that he's putting to the side and get to who those letters are from. And I I do like there's, um, and again, the camera works, there's a shot of, and there's a lot of this, um, where she's walking into the dig but the way it's structured looks like a grave pit and she's walking this path into what he's kind of cut out of the mound and he like sees her there and they're discussing digging to meet the dead which is you know the film really isn't about uh the treasure it's kind of about um life and death yep very much and this so. is when the earth collapses on him and they manage to save him. They, you know, they continue on. They're digging in the main mound uh, after that. 
And then you mentioned, so when they tell the story of Edith to him about her relationship with her husband, which it's mostly the same, but it's just the romance and kind of the, the beauty of it because the way he manages to at least tell the story it's kind of enchanting it's like a little bit of a fairy tale almost but actually real life and yeah. I don't know why like it, it just the way it comes off um and I suppose it's because of her age maybe in the film because it I think they say he came to propose her every year for 15 years and then they were together for quite a long time and then once she got pregnant older and then he died catching up to that. But because they didn't have, there isn't that time in their relationship, you don't get the impact yeah. of it, maybe? Yeah, I think so. The, the movie does, um, there's this interesting thing where it frames a lot of the kind of conversations. Instead of, the, instead of them just being the characters kind of <laughs> interacting and delivering lines, they'll do a thing where they'll cut away to like a, a beautiful kind of like lingering shot of a character or like a landscape and have dialogue playing over the top rather than us seeing that kind of interaction. And this is one of those cases where you're hearing um, the chauffeur and uh, I think she's the cook, the lions couple mm-hmm. who kind of live on the estate are telling Basil the story of um, how Frank proposes to Pretty, but you're only kind of hearing it in whispered tones from another room as you're kind of shown around there kind of house so it kind of loses a little bit of the kind of actual impact of the story yeah um and they do this a few times there's a few conversations that are handled in a similar way which are kind of beautiful and interesting but you actually kind of lose the the, the thread of the dialogue because of it well for me at least yeah you have the similar situation of um him finding rivet i think it was in the dig and going to try and identify it realizing oh this is a ship and after this is when we first meet Mary. So, <laughs> prepare myself <laughs> to discuss this. What happens is that Edith has asked Basil to dinner and she's kind of gussing herself up. And you could tell there's sort of this look between them. And not to say, like, I don't necessarily mind how Ralph finds this playing him because I think like he's doing a good job in general it's just trying to make him not attractive but like make him seem like a love interest (laughs) it's very out of place I think so his wife shows up for the day to kind of check up on him because he's been there I guess for longer than she thought he would be and she she brings him new shirts and she, she was like haven't you read my letters and he's like, oh, and he, it sounds like he's covering himself. He's like, oh, I'll save them for the weekend. And she's sort of like, about it. And and he just mm-hmm. comes off like really cold and indifferent to her. And then he also ends up having to cancel the dinner with Miss Pretty. And she looks a little upset and sees the two of them walking outside together. And it just, and the same thing happens where Mary doesn't stay for the night, but it more seems like out of, they're just like weird, like there's a disconnect between the two of them. Whereas in the book, it, it felt like she understood him so much that she knew it wouldn't be really helpful for her to be there. And that was more the reason, like he needed to just get on yeah. with things. Yeah, and the movie does, there's a, a few scenes later on with the pair of them where the movie 
movie falls more in line with the book and it does feel like there's that kind of understanding between them which is completely opposed to this opening scene with them um and then i think this was maybe me reading too much into it because of that opening scene there's a, a towards the end when he says he's gonna stay on a week to kind of put the ship to rest and say goodbye um and May says something to him along the lines of like, oh, yes, yeah, say, say goodbye to the old girl. Yeah, and she, and she it, looks at her, Edith, when she says that, though, as well. Edith, yeah. Um, so the way she says it is like, it could she could say that she means the boat, but there is like a, a very obvious cinematic choice to have her look and a shot pull in and linger on Edith mm-hmm. when she says that. And it's such, an, it's such, a, it's such a weird choice for them to have made. Because the book gives you none of none of the hooks to build this narrative on, but the movie decides that it's going to do this. Yeah. Um, and like I say, Ray Fiennes isn't like an unattractive man, yeah. but like in context, he's quite like a downtrodden older man yeah. in comparison to not as old as she should be. Carrie Mulligan's Edith, who is b- beautiful and um, strong and head smart and the it's not it doesn't feel like she'd be like starved of suitors that she'd be swept up by basil but that is the that is the story that i think they try and say well, she is very lonely i don't think he sees her but he's there's something about him yeah maybe but maybe. yeah no i find it I just found it very bizarre. And again, as you said, they do it a few times trying to allude to this, you know, his, their interest in each other. Um, obviously nothing yeah. really happens with them, but. Yeah, which is the thing, which is the most frustrating thing. It didn't thing, need really. to like, happen. The, it would have been fine without. Yeah. You can do it without, but if the move, if, you, if you're going to decide that you're going to kind of pull up this thread, we need like a, like a moment or a payoff. I hated it. But at least the the Lomax yeah. Peggy thing had an explosive payoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just it, it didn't go anywhere. It was kind of irritating. I was like, why are you trying? Like, not everyone has to lust after each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like even to the point where there's a scene later on where when Phillips comes to take over the dig, Basil again decides to like not be a part of it and leave which isn't in the book. Mm. But like, if you want to pull this thread of Edith having an interest in him, have her be like, I don't want you to work on the dig anymore mm. now that Phillips is here and have her send him away yeah. and then change her mind. And at least that feels like it's developing that, that idea a little bit. But she seems constantly happy to have him there, even if she's annoyed about him having this wife. It's, it's a bit of a mess in terms of yeah. a narrative hook for me. Because the next thing is that the museum takes over the dig and then he like gets pissed off and leaves and then mm-hmm. which doesn't happen and because uh, he, he comes off like a little more you know he'll say it in the, the film and then and then Robert chases after him on his um, on his bike and and then she's forced to get him and then he kind of gets convinced to come back. Oh, so she's, and then she suddenly starts having a cane, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed. 
Like, yeah, I think she gets the cane after the hospital visit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, she's quite sprightly until that point. But yeah, then she gets a cane. It's like, okay. Yeah, she really seems old now. She's the cane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Give her a Zimmer well, frame it, and maybe You know, we'll I think it's there. like with Lily James, they put glasses on her to make her not try and not make her look so attractive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that always works. Yeah. We, People can't look attractive in glasses. Heaven forbid. Yeah, make her look a little more plain. <laughs> Put some big glasses on her. Yeah. <laughs> because so then we meet Peggy and her husband Stuart, mm-hmm. who is um, her university professor, and they, you know, have just come from their honeymoon similarly. Also, there's a yeah. There's a lot of shots in this. They definitely push more about World War Two coming on. You see lots of shots of soldiers yes. in the background and soldiers kissing women which is foreshadowing obviously (laughs) and right away they start with like this super awkward interaction with them in the hotel room with a twin bed and and it's just like all right guys (laughs) like i i get it like because you know maybe he was gay maybe he wasn't and maybe it's just like they got married too young and just like they didn't you know sometimes you're with the wrong person and maybe they were with the wrong person but to make have to make it this thing i don't know yeah yeah it's like to the point where the movie the movie has um beautiful lily james come into their room de-robe and try and kiss her husband (laughs) and he runs away for a shower yeah (laughs) Um, so they, they do not beat around the bush and about how this relationship is not working. They give him a love interest as well. Another one. Yeah. Like, uh, they give him, like, a male uh, archaeologist's love interest almost immediately upon them arriving to the day. we wouldn't know that they didn't have relationship problems without him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't... I don't understand why... Each character had to have this also storyline about their love life. Yeah, yeah. Every every character has like a B plot, which is about their love life. Like the A plot is I like digging. B plot is love interest. Um, And yeah, I just don't think. I think it's more interesting for them to have marital problems and for you not to really be explicitly told what the reason is i think that's more interesting of a, a character study than oh he's not interested because he's gay but not allowed to be because it's 1939 so he's married a beautiful young woman a, a beard and but also wouldn't she notice he's not physically attracted to her before then <laughs> yeah this this is the thing yeah you don't I, I don't quite understand the context of how he swept her off her feet to get married yeah. Unless, unless I, I mean, again, I'm giving the book a movie more credit maybe than it deserves. Maybe it's uh, because of the time. Maybe there was no like courting. St- incredible physical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's courting her, and now they're married. She thinks that they can kind yeah. of go to that next kind of level, and now she's realizing, oh no, he's not. He's actually not interested. It's not he was being chivalrous or gentlemanly or whatever nonsense you want to say. Um, and yeah, I also I, think that's a little bit the... dangerous when you're dealing with real life people if you don't know for sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's one. Because I'm to very like... like, don't 
I don't know if he's still alive, probably not, but don't take someone out of the closet if they don't want to be. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's one thing to, like, it's one thing to age him up and kind of tweak how they met slightly. Oh, he's a professor yeah. rather than, like, another student. Oh, and he's older than her. That's one thing. But to go, oh, no, actually, he was this closeted homosexual and we're going to out him via this this movie. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong, I thought their performances were really great. Like, I thought he was yeah. really good in the role. This kind of, he really he felt like he did care for her, but it was obvious, like he was in love with this other character and he plays it really well I think um I think he's like like a, a really underrated actor I can't remember the guy's name um oh Ben Chaplin yeah no he's ben great Chaplin, I thank do you. he's really great I remember him he was in a um a British uh sitcom when I was really really young um in like the early 90s which is what I remember him from but I think he's I think he's really great um and they play off each other really well but yeah I think it was like such an unnecessary use of the movie's time to tell this this may be true but like definitely not a hundred percent true version of events it just felt like a shame and yeah and i think like it's one thing to want to do like have you watched bridgerton yet i have watched bridgerton yeah yeah. So, so like historical fiction fantasy like really like very loosely based off of and just kind of go all the way and like that where like no one thinks this is the real history when you're watching Bridgerton versus something like this that you know a lot of these people only recently have passed away or are still alive Mm -hmm. based off of something yeah that is fairly recent for the most part and there's the way they tell it is in a way that is very tied to reality so yeah to make these statements about real people i don't i I don't think i can agree with that as like oh it's because we have to make it work for cinema no you no you don't have to like it someone who doesn't have a voice uh or able to respond to you portraying them as this i just not i don't think it's hard to know, like, if if that was the case and that was that was him as the man, maybe he would have liked the fact that they portrayed him that way. But, like, if it's just rumour or, like, not even that, it's, like, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Um, like, this is a trick, I guess, when doing historical fiction where you are going to take kind of poetic licence and tweak things, like, Rory Lomax is a fictional, fictional, a completely fictionalized character. So you can kind of do what you want with him in context. But the fact that you have him playing with and interacting with actual real people is difficult. So if you want to tell this story about um, a married archaeological couple where one of them is closeted homosexual in the 1930s, then change the names or do something with them to make it kind of loosely based on real people rather than using their exact names, which where it gets a little murky for me, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. If you're like, oh, this is interesting, but, you know, people might still be alive, so I'm just going to change the names and do, like, my own thing with the story, and then it's, like, very loosely based off of what actually those surrounding the 
archaeological dig and they have like a soap opera thing where everyone's sleeping each other on the archaeological dig or something and you know it's going into each other's tents and stuff if they're going to do such a big change to a, a real life character why not fictionalize the character more by like changing a name or something more um because they're already changing so much about the story i think i think that wouldn't be the end of the world yeah because then uh so they they have um they start discovering everything like very quickly they're like oh gold 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh pretty similarly to in the book and I felt like this is when the pace of it actually got a bit better. It was a little more interesting once it started happening. Though also, like, once it started happening, it started deviating more from Yeah. But in the sense of, like, cinema, it was good. And uh, then we have uh, R- uh, Rory, a.k.a. Film Hottie, hanging <laughs> <laughs> out with Peggy. Um, well he's like on the site and they kind of see each other you know hot young guy and uh they all of this is pretty much the same the sort of discovery stuff and rory and peggy are hanging out and i actually love this scene in the book i immediately looked this person up where they're talking about nightingales and he he asked her if she's ever seen any and she's like not in real life but i have heard them on the radio or get with the wireless yeah and he talks about this woman beatrice harrison who is a cellist who used to play outside and nightingales would sing with her while she played the cello and i went on spotify and i listened to it it's actually really beautiful oh cool so i would recommend it and uh in this so they kind of split up in the book when they're hanging out they it's not really I mean, they have a connection, like it's a flirtation, the scene in the book. Yeah. More because she's like, her husband's not sleeping with her. So she's like, you know, is getting this attention from this other guy. Yeah, it's, it's more that, isn't it? It's just the attention. Like he seems interested in her for more than just her kind of archaeology skills, which is what her husband seems to be interested in solely. Um, I think she's enjoying that kind of side of things. So they split up the one scene that happens in the book. So they have them talking about the nightingales and then she gets interrupted. Her husband shows up and she sort of realizes like, I don't really want to be around him and kind of is really off on her own. And the, the next big change, there's the only reference to this, so there's this plane that crashes in the film. Yes. In the book, what happens is that, and again, I don't know if any of this is true. You probably actually could find out. Especially yeah, probably. In, in the film, they have someone, you know, crash and die in the river nearby. But what they do in the book is that when they were actually coming to show the, the dig site to the public, some pilot kind of taunting them flies down really low to where all the, the people are but it, it's more of like you know a bit of a fright whereas this this guy crashes and dies and I guess it's this again I think is meant to really be pushing more about what's happening with World War II yeah yeah story and very much dramatic effect of these young boys dying 
so stupidly for the most part. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's their chance to kind of portray Rory as this kind of like hero type. Like he dashes off immediately, he jumps in, he tries to save the pilot. He's already signed up to join the RAF. Like there's this whole kind of war hero vibe to him, which the movie plays up. Yeah. And I mean, what did you think? Did you think this worked in what they were doing differently in the film of getting really lining up World War II and the effect it was having on these people? Kind of, yeah. The movie does lean into it generally more. Like you see a lot more of this kind of impact and a broader range of the characters kind of talk about this kind of impending kind of encroaching war, whereas the book kind of shies away from it slightly. Like Edith sees some soldiers, and when she's in London in particular, in the book, she kind of sees their preparations. But where they are in Suffolk, it seems much more kind of a distant thought. Um, I didn't mind the scene. I thought it was kind of handled fairly well. I thought Lomax diving in was kind of good. Um, it added, like an, for me, like a, this unnecessary bleak moment. Like there's already quite a lot of kind of sad moments that the movie's building towards, like Peggy breaking off with Stuart, like Edith being unwell, Basil being held down despite him doing all this work. So it felt like an, an unnecessary kind of addition, especially with the fact that um, Robert's kind of witnessed to a bit of it and like is aware that this pilot's died and is worried about his uncle Rory going off to, to kind of fly. Um, I thought they handled it quite well, but I don't know. I don't really know if it was necessary or what it, what it really added to the kind of movie for me. And continuation of the flirtation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have Rory and Peggy hanging out after this, where he's clearly like realizing this is his future. He's going to die some sort of most likely, a, you know, a you know, pointless death uh, in this way alone. And uh, she tells him the story of her father drowning when she was child and kind of like, you know, they were healed a bit about themselves. Insane. And that's true, actually, as well. And they kind of like almost kiss, the, you know, but you can tell that they are into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to say she wears a lot of crop tops for the 1930s. She does and has her dress pulled up quite high at one point again for the 1930s. I mean, I realize it's not like the 1800s or something, but it's still the 1930s. I don't yeah. think it was a lot of bare, a lot of midriff showing. Yeah, especially considering most of the men are doing the archaeology in like basically full suits. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and and she, she makes the point about how, oh, we were on our holidays and we didn't know we were going to come here. And then Edith takes her off to get her, like, some more practical clothes and stuff. But, yeah, they... Um, she still, like, ties up her shirt, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's, like, oh, Lily James is attractive, so we don't want to put her in, like, baggy clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I worry that it's a bit of, a bit of that. But um, yeah, it did strike me as slightly unusual for the time, her having so much kind of skin on show. Yeah, I mean, she looks great. Like, I would totally, I love the outfit. Yeah, 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 no, no, not, we're not disputing that at all. No, but yeah, <laughs> it was slightly jarring for me. Because it is like, also, 
uh, in the book, she talks a lot about her looks and kind of feeling self-doubt because yes. her husband isn't finding her attractive and she's looking at herself and she's like, I look like a farm girl. You know, I'm really scruffy all the time. I'm not wearing any dresses or nice stuff because I'm having to work. So she has to dress very practically. And yes. like, it is a little bit like, it's like uh, when female superheroes are running around in high heels. I'm like, come <laughs> on, guys. No woman in their right mind would be like running around in heels. Nor yeah. would I think any woman would be like in the dirt digging for treasure in the skirt and crop top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a little you're, bit. You're not alone in feeling weird about those those choices. Yeah. Yeah, I and I don't think you would want either. No. Try to be a pair of practical pants and a you know <laughs> t-shirt. So uh, <laughs> then, uh, then I mean, it kind of. Then rounds out to the end. They've uh, they have the inquest, and we don't actually get to see the inquest happen. Whereas in the book, they kind of go through the people they interview. Yeah, and it's quite quick. And then so you just see her leaving. She starts crying afterwards. She's a very very sad person. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have the party where you have kind of you have all these the final pairings of everyone and they kind of have their the final conversations I guess to start to tie things up and you uh, have uh, Mary who's at the party as well and you have Rory and Peggy who are inside he's telling her he's going to warn she's like you can't die but he probably will even though he's not real Uh, you have Edith sort of crying over the photos of the day because she kind of she realizes she's obviously in this she's like fucked up and marrying this guy and um you know because there's a few points where he like gives longing looks to the other archaeologist yes (laughs) you have Mary telling Basil that it's okay to say goodbye to the old girl as she's looking at Edith (laughs) You have Edith and Peggy bonding together. Then also Edith promises that Basil's going to get recognition. He doesn't. <laughs> um, yeah. But like making a point to say his name and like be very forward about that. And then there's Peggy who's in the woods symbolically dropping her. Well, she, she tells her husband, sorry, at the party that, you know, you go on ahead. And he's like, are you going to follow us? He's like, no, never follow you. So this is it. Like, literally go on ahead. Yeah. And uh, then she, yeah, so she drops a ring in the woods and she sees Rory and he's about to go to war and they're like, this is it. And they go have sex in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) While, While that's happening, Edith and Robert are spending one last night in the the, the boat looking at the stars because Basil's gonna cover it up the next day and then the film ends with the war being announced and Robert waving goodbye to Basil because he's been being sent off for the war and that's the film yes that is the film <laughs> so to quote Simon Stone the director on um, the changes of the changes mm-hmm. <laughs> He said, 
John Preston's novel departs from the truth in a lot of aspects and doesn't purport to be absolutely accurate. So the scope for departing from historical accuracy was already there. Yeah, I guess I guess that sums up, Simon. Thanks. Yeah, it's like, well, he did it. So I want to do it. I'm going to do more. <laughs> I'm going to show you. <laughs> it just... Because we, and I think having done this for quite a while now, I wouldn't say we're mm-hmm. experts, but we've definitely read a lot of historical adaptations mm-hmm. and 30, certainly ones with artistic licenses, uh, but also ones where it's like an artistic license, but it's an artistic vision. Whereas like, as you said, this has the beats of the actual story. And there, there is like a beauty to the aesthetic of the film, but yeah, that that's the thing. Like, the cinematography is beautiful, and the acting is all like incredibly good. Like, even the the character changes, I'm not a fan of. I think uh, the actors do a lot with that material and portray things in interesting ways. Um, but yeah, I think what you what you said about artistic license and artistic vision is is a very kind of astute distinction. Because it seems like a lot of the changes, uh, I don't see what what their vision or value is, what the kind of end result they're looking for is with those changes, um, which makes me question their inclusion at all, if that makes sense. Yeah, I just, it feels like they didn't dig very deep <laughs> into the story. <laughs> and I, I, I feel like I'm torn, like whether it's a good adaptation or whether or not I'm just having a problem enjoying the actual material. This is the thing. I think if we're just talking about the movie adapting the book as source material, then I think it's a, a, a really great adaptation. There's a few things they tra- change for the better and a few things they change for the worse in comparison to the source material of the book. Yeah. But if we're looking at both of them in context to the actual events of the historical dig, I think they're both lacking. Yeah. It just, yeah, I don't have anything against the film of the book. I would, I think, I'm happy for people to enjoy it. Yep. But it's just like, it's the, the phrase stranger than fiction, like reality stranger than fiction. And they've like made this fiction and it's not as weird and interesting as reality. And it's just kind of dull. And Yeah, it's a real thing when, when you've got such interesting historical people and they decide to instead weave in some romance plots, mm-hmm. which seem very mundane and pedestrian in context to what these people actually did and achieved. Because <laughs> I, I didn't feel any more interest than going on Wikipedia and reading more about it. Yeah. And yeah. then I was like, oh, the Wikipedia entry is super interesting. <laughs> Yeah, which is... But less than the actual thing I just saw. Yeah, which is a shame. It's not the ideal end result of having read a book. Um, yeah, but I do I do want to I do want to keep caveating out the fact that I did... Yeah. The process of reading the book is enjoyable. The, the plot is an enjoyable experience. But it is in context of having done more research that it kind of falls a bit flat, unfortunately, for me. Um, yeah. And the movie, whilst elevating it in terms of the kind of the beauty of it, the way it's kind of presented, again, loses something with those slight additions of the kind of Edith Basil potential 
intrigue and romance and I didn't need the kind of Peggy's fond farewell before he heads off to war sex in the woods escapade also not even woods in like the ruins of some random building that's suddenly there yeah yeah exactly exactly Um, and no I I do think the film is entertaining I think the film mm -hmm. might be actually slightly more entertaining than the book oh I agree for a movie that's two hours long and ostensibly about digging it flew by (laughs) very little digging is Um, no, yeah, so it is, I, I hate, I mean, maybe strong word, I really am disinterested in those, as you said, the B plots of the romance, and I think it would have been a better film for not, and I think it is like, um, it's a, it's a reflex, like it's a, it's a weak reflex that Hollywood is so used to, like defining people by the romantic liaison, by their relationship. Like they can only be a person, a fleshed out person, if they have a romantic interest. Yeah, I agree. I think you've really summed that up actually. It, it is a disinterest in them. I don't think they're like terrible, like romance plots. I'm just not interested in that story they're trying to tell. And if you want kind of conflict or drama, there's already built in conflict and drama with the real life events of like, yeah. People try to take control and ownership of this big historical dig, like how they look down on each other or like are trying to like weasel or get their own way. There's elements of that you can emphasize and play up that are based on on more facts um, and you don't need romance. You, you can, you've got these kind of heartbreaking romance stories that you can talk about, Edith and Frank, which is like a real thing. Like there's a lot you can do with that. You don't need these rom-com cute romance things yeah if someone was going to do a film of my life (laughs) I think I would be like really upset like if like all the pinnacle moments of my life were only told through the lens of who I was having like romantic liaison with and I do like I feel like I need to apologize now like talking about Peggy sorry Peggy and like she had all these amazing relationships but and those are like, they're really fascinating from a sense of like all the people she surrounded herself with. Mm-hmm. But she's so much more than that in like being this crazy academic, like intelligent woman who came from a situation which wasn't really supportive of her interests. And she, you know, went out on her own and applied to go to the School of Archaeology in London. Yeah. And created this amazing career for herself. And she happened to have these various relationships along the way. But the, the sum of her career and her life is not defined by that because she, you know, moved on from a lot of those situations, but still was, you know, at the end of the day was producing amazing quality publications and literally discovering history constantly. Yeah, <laughs> like the, the, that's the saddest thing, isn't it? The fact that the movie, the two biggest moments of agency the movie gives her are ending things with her husband and telling him to leave and choosing to sleep with Lomax like those are her big moments of agency not like anything to do with the big historical event that she's part of which is what which is what rose me the wrong way the most is the fact that they rob her of of those moments of agency and give her those in the romance context yeah really 
and we've had this problem before in a lot of movies and that's yeah. why i think it's just it's this weird like flex that hollywood keeps trying to do it's like you can't be interested in a person unless they're sleeping with someone yeah agreed <laughs> i don't think any adaptation we've read that is the um, the movie version has added uh, a romance plot that is not present in the book has added anything to yeah said experience I think- I think maybe Hollywood thinks we're more interested in people's love lives than we actually are. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and maybe maybe some people are. Maybe we're like the outliers. Maybe we're we're the unusual. I mean, I'm ones. interested in like people I care about. <laughs> <laughs> but like this is a person on my TV screen, like screen, you know. Yeah. And it's again, like, you know, we talk about Bridgerton, which is another based off a book as well. Like that is specifically about people's relationships and romance. And it, it's exactly. you know, it's like and it's kind of like stupid in the sense, like literally their lives are nothing more than their relationships is all you get out of them. So Yeah, yeah. Um, but at least you, at least that's the kind of, it's a romance novel about people's relationships and love lives and romantic interactions. So you kind of expect that and know that and understand why a lot of the plots hung on that. But a, a book and a movie about an archaeological dig shouldn't have... 20% of its plot hooks hung on romantic interests. Please, I'm putting it out there into the universe. Someone write a really good book about Sudden Who House because it sounds fascinating. Like all the people involved, uh, involved in it, yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. characters, <laughs> yeah, I, I for would, a really good story. I would read like a, like, like you say, like a fairly dry facts, facts kind of mm-hmm. book, ad- um, book version. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't put me much faith in John Preston's writing for someone who writes about like historical events. <laughs> yeah, but, but having said that, we both agreed that A Very English Scandal was a phenomenal TV show. So maybe that book is equally good. Uh, I'm going to quickly Google who did the adaptation. I don't know. Cause, well, it said, because obviously when I read that quote, he said he was like a TV critic. So maybe like his writing style is in the style of like, I want it slightly overwrought for wasn't you know. his his book or his book that a very English scandal was based on non-fiction it was more factual it was based on yeah, facts that's rather what than I thought. yeah um so from what looks that it sounds really i might that i think feel like that would be more uh interesting yeah i would rewatch a very English scandal if you want to nora <laughs> okay. Stephen frears was the yeah. director and it was... Oh, well, Russell T. Davies. Russell T. Davies. That yeah. Was no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder. That makes sense. Um, do you have any other comments before we finish up about the material as we're straying? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, always happy to do A Rose and a Thorn, but no. No, yeah. I think I have um, exhausted my thoughts on the, on the book mm-hmm. and the movie. So, yeah, if you want to do A Rose and a Thorn, then. Um, I think we did touch on it, but I thought the the way the epilogue was handled in the book was particularly particularly mm-hmm. lovely. The structure in general, bar the prologue, which I thought was unnecessary, I really enjoyed this kind of evolving look of who you're following as a point of uh, a point of view for the narrative was really great. And jumping those twenty years ahead with Robert at the end was was a lovely touch to see his take on how things have changed and progressed and what he knew of the people he'd met. Was, was was lovely. Um, yeah. 
uh, form for the book is probably that prologue. It just felt like unnecessarily racy to have this weird, like pseudo exciting opening. Um, didn't work for me. Uh, for the movie, um, I think the cinematography is a is a standout. Um, as are some of the performances. I think, um, uh, as you say, it's only a small part, but Basil's wife I thought was particularly great. Like one of the yeah. most consistent kind of characters and performers throughout. Yeah, just phenomenal. Um, uh, it wasn't terrible, but I had a real bad taste in my mouth for Robert and Edith's final scene. This kind of looking up at the stars, space travel, going to see dad thing again, didn't, didn't work for me, um, unfortunately. Um, how about you? I feel like we're on the same page for most of it, um, <laughs> which I'm kind of surprised by because there are I, a lot of people who I've seen who do enjoy it, but you know, you can kind of enjoy it at a superficial level. And then unfortunately when you start digging, you know, comes yeah. away. Um, I I mean, in the book, I do think he has some beautiful prose. Like, there's the one little paragraph where, I think it's her, she's talking, I think Edith is talking about, in photographs of London, don't you notice when there's, that there's never any people, because... Yes, um, that is lovely, actually. I forgot that little people, scene. People are, because it's the time it takes to take a picture. Uh, the exposure, they're moving too fast. Yeah, and I thought... Yeah, so there's these little, you know, despite size, you know, crumbs or in the story that I, I did find really endearing. And I did, mm. you know, I enjoyed legitimately reading that. Um, I did not enjoy necessarily the lack of actual, actual archaeology <laughs> and history. Because I was like, wait, stop talking about your personal life or your inner monologue. Yeah. Tell me more about the dig. <laughs> so I would have appreciated a little more research into the actual history. As well as like I wanted to find out more about this actual king that was buried. I was like, who this guy yeah. in the Dark Ages? And I suppose I could just read a book about him. <laughs> and then with the film, yeah, like you said, the cinematography is funny. I think they all created great characters in a sense in their acting and development of them they yeah, did a very good 100%. job uh the only thing and i think this is my thorn really is i felt like lily james meant to be in a different movie yeah i i i'd agree with that somewhat yeah um i thought i'm a bit hot and cold on her in general but yeah i do feel like it wasn't quite the same movie um mm-hmm. But weirdly, like I felt like Stuart, her husband, was in the yeah. the dig, but she was in a slightly different movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think maybe she's a little bit too soft. Maybe not the right word, but everyone else had a bit more of an edge to them, and it felt like a bit more of a kind of a grittier world than she was portraying. I just remembered something about her because it's. And in relation to what you just said, it, she doesn't really seem like she's lived a life. Whereas the real mm. Peggy, when she was, I think it, she's like just finishing school, she met her because her parents had died and she was living with her, their aunt. And she, 
she they want her to be like a debutante and she at like a ball some guy mentions he's going to bosnia to study and she says will you take me with you wow uh, and remember because they mentioned she wrote this paper on like the bosnian lake villages yes yes and, yeah and this is where it came from in that and he was like originally there was a lot of like uh but it, apparently it was like all up on the up and up and she went and spent like time in bosnia when she you know studying there at this sort of whatever it was and that and she, so she clearly like even at a young age was like living this life that was fascinating yeah. and she would i just she didn't seem like she had an, a lot of experience just in general existence yeah. whereas i think the real person clearly did and all the other people in the film you could see the burden of their lives yeah 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 that is a very succinct way of putting it yeah exactly <laughs> that <laughs> so that um sorry lily james i know you've been in two other of our discussions <laughs> i don't think she's, she's not a bad actress no no I, I i think she's very good in certain things but um i don't think she always works for the the kind of movie she's in sadly so you know, generally good adaptation, maybe not the best material, which is kind of a weird statement. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of the first times that's been been the case where I think the movie is a great adaptation of the book, but they're both not great versions of the story. So, listeners, if you'd like to enjoy it, it's just like an, a quick read. It's kind of fun. And like a very light movie that's pretty to watch, go for it. But please, um, caution, big caution sign, take none of this for fact. None of it's historically accurate. Go on Wikipedia if you actually want to. Or British Museum, go to the British Museum website. They did a really good uh, blog entry talking about the film and the real life events. And obviously they have the real uh, artifacts from the dig at the British Museum. So when you can go, go see them because they're pretty cool. I have seen them, so. Oh, I have not, so I, I think I will be when when yeah. the world is allowed to again. There you go, and thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>